0: Why don't you do the intro because I keep doing it. Sure. Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of All Each Other Has. I'm Carrie and I'm talking with my sister Ellie. We are bringing you part two of our doll episode series. This time we're going to be talking about the massive interruption in the age of Barbie's hegemony over the American (laughs) doll market, which is the introduction of the Bratz line um, and what its popularity says about racial identity, gender, and consumerism in the early 2000s. So Ellie, can you tell us a little bit about
1: the introduction of the Bratz line? When does that happen? Yeah. So I have to admit that I was not that into Bratz dolls because they came out in 2001. And I feel like by the time they were kind of on my radar, I had aged out of Barbies a bit. But I do remember the commercials were very memorable. And I felt like their images were everywhere. They were cartoon characters. They had, you know, a whole line of accessories. Um, But to talk about the dolls themselves, we used a great essay from a woman named Lisa Guerrero at Washington State University. And her essay is called, Can the Subaltern Shop? The Commodification of Difference in the Bratz Dolls. And so in 2001, Bratz came out and they were made by a toy company called MGA Entertainment. And they had four dolls. The first was Chloe, she was a white girl. <laughs> the second is Sasha an African-American doll. Jade was Asian-American and Yasmin was a seemingly mixed race doll. Uh, but according to Guerrero, she could easily pass as a Latina, a Filipina, a South Asian girl, or a white girl with a good tan and a talented colorist hair colorist, which I thought was so funny. If I can keep reading, I'm quoting directly, all of the dolls were outfitted in trend-setting, urban-inspired clothes and accessories, including platform boots, midriff tops, miniskirts, baby tees, fur jackets, and skull caps. So, yeah, that was sort of how they came onto the scene in 2001.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember getting Bratz dolls.
1: I remember you had them, yeah.
0: I have a specific memory of getting one in the gifting suite of the Jingle Ball, the Z100 <laughs> Jingle Ball, which was really interesting. Throwback. One thing people forget about brats is that they have not removable shoes, but removable feet. That's Mm -hmm. how you change their shoes. You take off their feet, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting and decidedly different from Barbie's permanently arched, you know, disproportionately small feet. Their
1: feet were huge.
0: Parents were, and I'm talking about like middle class, upper middle class, white parents. They seemed very disturbed by brats when they came out. In a way that they weren't with Barbie, maybe because they were a new doll. But brats were decidedly urban. They wore a ton of makeup. Mm-hmm. They had huge lips, which I don't know if that's just supposed to be some kind of phenotypic racial signaling or what. They wear belly chains. They, you know, as their ads say, they had flavor
1: mm-hmm. and a, a passion for fashion.
0: Right. And in this article, The Commodification of Difference in the Bratz Dolls, Guerrero, she has four spaces of critical inquiry. So the first one is uh, the Bratz's paradoxical investment in racial identities. The second one uh, is gender and sexuality politics. The third is the influence of materialism and commodity culture, um, which is something that is so early 2000s, thinking of, you know, The Simple Life and Pit My Ride and MTV Cribs. Uh, and the fourth is the so-called street cred culture that Guerrero says provided, you know, especially suburban white kids, a tourist opportunity of the urban imaginary space without having to actually interrogate the messiness of that urban space.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: And it lends to a kind of exotification, especially of mixed race identities. I wanted to give as context, though, kind of why these dolls would have been introduced at this particular moment in time, culturally in the U.S., In an article or a book, rather, that we're going to talk about a bunch next week that focuses a lot on American girl dolls, in the 80s and 90s, there was this premium in American media and consumerism on the concept of multiculturalism and sort of uh, America as a melting pot, which I think is sort of a very surface level consensus about history and culture. And it's like a post-civil rights movement consensus, post-women's movement, post-civil rights movement, post-gay rights movement in some ways, consensus that we're all part of this melting pot and now everything's great and uh, we live in a multicultural society and how wonderful is that? But it's a very specious kind of understanding that erases the nuances and tensions that make America so interesting. And it's so funny that conservatives and, and Republicans are so scared of critical race theory and thinking that that's being taught in schools because I was trying to read like Kimberly Crenshaw, <laughs> actual critical race theory. And it's very, very hard to understand and read. Mm-hmm. And I seriously doubt that your child is is being Taught that, but maybe they're trying to say its influence trickles into other spaces. Anyways, I guess this isn't unique to Kimberly Crenshaw, but she talks about how historians of American racial politics sometimes refer to the end of the 20th century as the age of repudiation because the 90s were this rejection of the civil rights consensus and the renunciation of of the idea that government has to play an active role in fighting racial injustice. So in short, It's like this consensus that we've achieved equality and the civil rights struggle, uh, you know, accomplished what it set out to do, and there's no more racism. Mm -hmm. And we know that's not true because of the L.A. uprising, because of backlash against the women's movement and third wave feminism that becomes the bubblegum misogyny of girls gone wild, honestly, in some ways. Of Bratz dolls, mm-hmm. of you know shows like Girls Next Door or The Simple Life of the early two thousands, with emphasis on abortions having to be safe, legal, and rare. Also, the nineties as this like very anti gay period in American history with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Matthew Shepard. Mm. It's really interesting to watch Dawson's Creek with these things in mind. Yeah. But, anyways, I just wanted to kind of set the stage for this undercurrent of like the importance of American multiculturalism at the end of the 20th century as sort of the culture in which doll lines like brats or like American girl dolls can be turned into commodities. It's like turning American multiculturalism into a commodity to be sold Mm -hmm. to children. And we talked last time about this idea from Molly Rosner of toys and dolls being didactic amusements or, or cultural artifacts that say something about the era and society and place in which they're produced. So that's what I'm getting at
1: here. Yeah, sorry. There's so much I want to pick up on. Um, Let me just say with critical race theory, I I don't understand why people get so upset about that. I think it's just teaching kids, just looking at history through multiple prisms, uh, looking at the systems that were in place. And becoming aware of things like redlining, the actual segregation baked into law for most of our country's history – And, you know, I guess people feel like it tells white kids that they're at fault somehow or, you know, that they have privilege, which is true. But anyway, so so putting that aside for a second, we talked about that era. Let's talk about the Bratz dolls themselves. You know, what was your reaction to first seeing their commercials, first having one, you know, holding one in your hand? What did you think of it?
0: I mean, I thought that they were really cool. And, you know, talking about dolls is a reflection of the society in which they're produced and, and packaged and sold. I mean, Bratz dolls looked like in many ways, the girls that were cool on TV—I mean, I'm not talking really about Disney Channel or Nickelodeon, but I'm talking about what I saw slightly older kids like you, Ellie, seeing on TV, like on MTV—they mm. kind of looked like Paris and Nicole. Right. In retrospect, their clothes were very reflective of the McBling fashion of, you know, the mid. 2000s. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? I only learned about that term somewhat recently from a TikTok video essay.
1: Me too. You you literally just explained it to me, but um, this is my sense of it. I guess it was kind of a departure and also in conversation with Y2K fashion.
0: It's all about excess and nihilism And, you know, hedonism, hot pink, the juicy couture, tracksuits or the Where's My Couture rhinestones. Rhinestones. It's I mean it's what the plastics wear in Mean Girls. And, you know, Y2K fashion, which I feel like now it's like McBling fashion is coming back because it's following the comeback of Y two K fashion. And it's been very strange. You know, people always say fashion is cyclical and But to see the trends from my childhood or early adolescence coming back is a very strange thing. I know. And Y2K fashion, I think, evokes – You know, the future and computers and technology and things are metallic or space oriented. And they represent a moment where the
1: future still seems sexy and exciting. No, there was this great movie on Disney Channel. It was called Xenon, Girl of the 21st Century. And um, raven Simone was in it. And I just, yeah, I remember, you know, they're literally space buns. Like that was the look, Uh, which is so funny.
0: McBling the McBling aesthetic is different because it's like distinctly post 911 when the future is here and it's actually really scary and America is fighting this invisible enemy and is under attack And I think the answer to it – and maybe that's why McBling is coming back now because we're we're living in that again in a totally different way, the threat being climate change and also the death of American democracy. But it's like decidedly nihilistic and just, you know, I don't give a fuck about anything. Loss of American innocence. The future is actually
1: terrifying and we're living in it. Right. And I would rather um – Just focus on myself. The what the culture of narcissism that you always talk about. Oh yeah, of
0: course, Christopher Lash. Right, the the ontological uncertainty leading people to be obsessed with projects of the self. And you know, Christopher Lash is writing in 1979, but certainly foreshadowing the coming of reality TV, which foreshadows the coming of social. Right. Exactly. Anyways.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So let me tell you, I'm going to answer my own question and let you know that when I first saw the Bratz commercial, I remember feeling intimidated and uncomfortable because to me, they were like walking sex dolls in a way that Barbie wasn't. I think it was that they had these big lips. You know, and so much makeup and these sort of crazy proportions on their face, like, you know, like basically no nose, giant eyes with tons of eyeshadow on them and big lips. And I think I felt like, wow, you know, it's Barbie is one thing, but gosh, these girls are super sexualized. But, you know, after reading Guerrero, I sort of see it a different way. She says that, you know, while Brats are sexy, they remain largely unsexualized. And, you know, their bodies are still marked by an inordinately tiny waist, you know, but they don't really have much of a bust because they're mm-hmm. supposed to be teenagers, and Barbie is supposed to be a woman. While this is a narrow view of femininity, the brat dolls were able to try on and perform different versions of it. You know, they had so many outfits and looks, you know, tomboy, punk girly girl, sports girl. So there were, I feel like they could perform in a different way than Barbie because Barbie sort of always kind of had the same look, even if she changed.
0: Like hyper feminine. Yeah. yeah,
1: and And, you know, to a certain degree, pretty wholesome. And, you know, Guerrero also talks about how Barbie, even if she, you know, a job, it was never really a career. And her narrative was really centered around domestic bliss and a nuclear family. And so the Bratz dolls were teenagers and they got to just have fun. You never got a sense that they had after school jobs or anything. They just, I guess, could buy whatever they want and express themselves however they liked. Um so in some ways that was liberating from Barbie.
0: Yeah. I think what you were saying about them feeling so sexual and so much more so than Barbie is really interesting and i wonder if it has to do with baked in bias and you know the hypersexualization of non white women or in in this case particularly mixed race women because beyond the four main brats all these other brats come out that are supposed to look quote unquote Ethnic and their features are not white or Anglo centric features. You know, they have large lips and almond shaped eyes, and they're supposed to look urban. And I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, in the 19th century, especially when the future of slavery became more uncertain than ever in the 1850s, the ever more distinct racial categories for Describing, you know, different degrees of blackness become like completely codified in like New Orleans showrooms and the concept of quadroon balls, a quadroon being a woman who is a quarter black of so called fancy girls who were, you know, often house slaves that were abused sexually or sold at a very high price. I recommend the work of Walter Johnson who is a historian who writes a lot about these New Orleans showrooms but anyways in like 20th century american literature and you know 19th too like we see this in uncle tom's cabin but the whole tragic mulatto narrative you know the runaway slave like Eliza in uncle tom's cabin it's it's almost a curse put on to her that she is mixed race or you know, showboat, or it's always that in these very popular, you know, racial passing narratives like Pinky or Imitation of Life or showboat. I mean, there are so many. The woman who is passing as white, but is actually secretly partly black is outed in some way, and it leads to her demise. And those plots were very popular in the first half of the 20th century in both books. And movies, like in in terms of books, Nella Larson's novel Passing. But anyways, that's kind of done away with at the turn of the millennium because of this premium, you know, maybe it's inauthentic, but placed on multiculturalism. And to be mixed race is something that's very cool. And Ellie and I had been reading this piece by Danzi Senna, who is mixed race herself from, what is it, 1997. It's called The Mulatto Millennium. Do you want to read part of it?
1: So this is an article from 1998 that uh, was published in Salon. It's called Mulatto Millennium by Danzi Senna, as you mentioned. And the subtitle is, since when did being the daughter of a wasp and a black Mexican become cool? And she starts, strange to wake up and realize you're in style. That's what happened to me just the other morning. It was the first day of the new millennium, and I woke up to find that mulattoes had taken over. The radio played a steady stream of Lenny Kravitz, Sade, and Mariah Carey. I thought I'd died and gone to Berkeley, which is funny. Uh, but then I realized, according to the racial zodiac, 2000 is the official year of the mulatto. Pure breeds, at least the black ones, are out, and hybridity is in. America loves us in all of our half caste glory. The president announced on Friday that beige is to be the official color of the millennium. Major news magazines announced our arrival as if we were proof of extraterrestrial life. They claim we're going to bring about the end of race as we know it.
0: Yeah. I mean, she then talks about, interestingly, Zoe Kravitz, who at this time is like an infant or like Mm. a, a child, you know, being the epitome of mulatto cool, which I guess she does end up becoming that. Right. And... I love Danzi Senna. She wrote an amazing novel called Caucasia that I read in Michelle Elam's class at Stanford. Michelle Elam is mixed race herself and writes about mixed race politics and culture. She wrote a great book called Souls of Mixed Folk that you should check out. But there was this emphasis that, you know, mixed race Americans were going to bring the end of racism through miscegenation. And I'm using the dated, you know, very 19th century term miscegenation to illustrate a point. But I think also in the census, you have, I'm pretty sure in the 90s for the first time, so many more racial categories than usual. And, you know, what box are people going to check off in the census? I mean, the census has always been this, but, you know, becomes an even more obvious, tool of race making. And there's a really interesting Time magazine cover story from, I think it's like 1993 that highlights this. Yeah. It's a special issue of Time magazine. It's a special issue. Yeah. And it has this AI generated woman on it. It says something like, this this person was made using
1: computers. Here, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. What does it say? It has a woman on the cover, a woman's face. And to me, she looks Caucasian, I would say. You know, she's got tan skin, hazel eyes, and brown hair. And the title says The New Face of America How Immigrants Are Shaping the World's First Multicultural Society. Take a good look at this woman. She was created by a computer from a mix of several races. What you see is a remarkable preview of the new face of America. So, very interesting that this was really on people's minds and in the zeitgeist in the 1990s and 1980s, as you say. Right.
0: I mean, there is this expectation that in the
1: future, well, we we were starting to live
0: in a post racial society, which is so, such a specious claim, Mm -hmm. but that in the future, because of interracial procreation, you know, there was going to be no such thing um, as someone being Black or white or Asian. Everyone was going to be mixed.
1: How do you square that with, you know, the explosion of interest in 23andMe and genetics, you know, genetics companies opening up to everyday people? You know, how much is a 23andMe kit, like $90? I think so. Yeah. Everyone's doing it. I haven't done it. Have you? (laughs) Yes, I've done it. So what's fascinating about that is that people love to share their results and say, oh, well, you know, I'm 25% this. I'm actually, you know, I actually have some African heritage and like, you know, people are proud of it for the most part, but at the same time, which sort of shows you that it's cool to wear a different race, you know, it's almost like a costume. And obviously you get into that with major cultural appropriation, which has really become an issue. What's always been an issue, but people's awareness of it has really been raised, you know, in the past 10, 15 years. At the same time, you have people, you know, who are entrenched in their whiteness and you have this major rise in white supremacy at the same time which is fascinating right
0: well that you know all this stuff about great replacement theory or you know this white shift right or the fact that white people in this country are becoming a minority and all the anxiety over that is obviously related mm-hmm. to this and it also obviously has to do with immigration mm-hmm. but I had Jelani Cobb as a professor in journalism school and he described what's happening to our democracy, you know, in terms of gerrymandering, in terms of voter suppression, as the creation of what's called a, a, hair invoke democracy. And I'll read the definition of that, but basically it's a democracy in which only a specific ethnic group participates in government while others are disenfranchised. And that is what America is turning into. Um, and, you know, I think Republicans in this country have realized that white people are becoming less and less a proportion of the population. So instead of trying to actively recruit voters of color, the response is to dilute the power of their vote or to suppress their vote. Mm. And anyways, let's get back to dolls though, <laughs> because and this is all really interesting and yeah, very and much related. related. Jinx. <laughs> Right. And like talk about cultural appropriation. I mean, I think that is one of the issues that Guerrero has with the Bratz dolls, though she doesn't really call it that. And
1: I think that's what made me uncomfortable with them too, beyond the fact that to me they seemed very sexual Mm -hmm. and marketing dolls wearing so much makeup. I don't mean to make my younger self sound like a narc or – or a prude um but to me it was like whoa wow they're sexy and their midriffs are showing and they've got a lot of lipstick on and like okay when brats first came on the scene i remember very vividly seeing a commercial of the dolls and they also had cartoon counterparts that were interacting with real girls and you know in places like the mall or um you know, at at soccer practice and stuff. And I remember feeling really inadequate and uncomfortable because I didn't look anything like those girls. And I didn't know anyone who really did. They had these huge heads and tiny bodies um, and big feet, <laughs> and giant lips and giant eyes and so much makeup. And I think it just spoke to a very specific kind kind of femininity on one level. That I just didn't feel like I could ever achieve at that age. You know, it's a—it's very strange because only you know. Not, excuse me. It's very strange because you're not marketing them really to teenagers. You're you're marketing them to preteens, even though they are teenage characters. And I think on um, on a second level, I felt uncomfortable. I definitely feel uncomfortable now. I don't know how aware I was of this, that they were marketing these dolls, saying you should buy these dolls because they are girls of color and that's cool and hip and that's what's in right now. And that is so sort of messed up to me.
0: Do you feel like that was partly though because it was unmooring your identity a bit in terms of your understanding of whiteness as the
1: default? Yeah, I maybe I mean that's a really interesting question and I I don't, you know, I don't know how I can answer that because, you know, I can't go back to that time when I was, you know, 12 or 13, but I I think what it, what it really un, it unmoored me more so in terms of my relationship to my femininity and sexuality. And I think it said to girls at a very young age that makeup is the norm, that much makeup and that short of skirts and that short, short of a t-shirt. And I'm all for women showing what they want to show and feeling empowered by their sexuality and in their bodies. But it was a very narrow, limited definition of that. And, But I think part of it too is that they were marketed as having, and this is literally from Bratz, quote unquote, flavor. And that they were put into situations where, you know, the backdrop of their commercials was always very urban. And like it was about making racial difference cool and hip, which can be a good thing, but also you're commodifying and, you know, uh, turning race into something you wear instead of something right. that you, you are. are. Yes.
0: Yeah. And she speaks to, you know, you and I, Ellie, were talking about. The ubiquity of hip hop culture, kind of the mainstreaming of blackness and black culture in the early 2000s. And that's a phenomenon described as the browning of America. So we see like the popularity of tanning salons, of mm-hmm. hip hop culture, a little bit later, the Kardashification of bodies. Mm hmm. But the Bratz
1: line kind of speaks to that cultural shift. Totally. And what's fascinating is that if you look at Bratz Doll's face, they're sort of – it's like they're girls wearing a filter on Instagram, and they very much have what Gia Toletino has dubbed Instagram face, which is so fascinating because Gia Toletino, at least, she says that everybody kind of looks the same on Instagram. It's big lips its arched eyebrows, high cheekbones, fox eyes. Yeah, uh, you know not really any freckles or age spots, definitely no wrinkles. And so everyone's starting to look the same and she said that it feels like we're cherry picking different features from different races to put on one face. You know, so I it's really interesting when you think about it that way. And then in terms of that time of the early 2000s, you know, I remember very vividly with movies like Honey, which came out in 2003, which touched on some more structural issues with communities of color, um with the character of Lil Romeo. <laughs> Who was going off and hanging with the wrong crowd? and honey kind of had to bring him back uh, into the fold and save his soul. You know, it portrayed that world of hip hop and music videos as being extremely sexy and not only mainstream, but the desired aesthetic and style for everybody. Even white girls like me. <laughs> I know, and then like we see black culture honestly being
0: appropriated, but maybe it's not because it's like, you know, there's certain crossover um, in places like Detroit, but with movies like Eight Mile, mm-hmm. um, and even Step Up, which yes. I think the two main characters are are
1: white, but or Save the Last Dance, right, which is an interracial couple. There was definitely something happening at that time. Then now when we look back, it's sort of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if that was really so cool that we didn't acknowledge the history of where the hip hop aesthetic came from. You know, and I worked on a show briefly called The Get Down on Netflix. And so I learned a lot about the birth of hip hop and Africa Bombata and Grandmaster Flash. And you know, it really came out of the projects and uh, actually they really credit the blackout of 1977 as being instrumental in the hip hop movement. It's just important to know the history of where hip hop culture came from. And I think that's what cultural appropriation is really about. It's like, if you want to wear gold hoops or do the baby hair thing, you know, I know Bella Hadid got into a lot of trouble. It's like, you should know where it comes from. (laughs) Right. and uh, understand that you're coming to it from a place of privilege and and also that fashion has been
0: something that was derided mm-hmm, totally by like mainstream white culture when worn by the people who invented it. But I think this is related to what you were saying in the piece we've been talking about. Guerrero says that In the world of brats, race is just an accessory that denotes hipness without the cost of racial signification. You know, what is the cost of interracial dating or racial profiling or redlining or discrimination? Right. But at the same time, I was thinking of the opposite argument. You know, Britt Bennett, who wrote The Vanishing Vanishing Half, Half, I think she wrote something in Paris Review about the American Girl doll Addie, and this is we're going to talk about all about American Girl dolls ad nauseum in the next episode. But the, the fact that for so long the only Black American Girl doll was a slave, like what what is that saying? I mean, it's acknowledging history and trying to be you know a didactic doll and acknowledge America's past and kind of reject. The consensus history, you know, that America has been on this constant road to progress when we know that's not really true. But you run the risk of essentializing a racial identity when the black doll can only be a slave or it has to be a story involving a black character has to be about the civil rights movement or has to be about, I don't know, hip hop or something to do with her racial identity. I mean, you see, see the same thing with, you know, gay characters or trans characters. I think more and more we see characters who, are trans or, you know, a character with gay parents in like a teen show. But the show is not about
1: those characters being gay or being trans. That's not their only story. (laughs) Or it's just who they are. It's not a story at all. Right. Which I think is amazing. Shows like Sex Education, I think, do an amazing job of that. And I also – it's different, obviously. But sometimes for female characters, you know, I'm always – predicting, oh, this trauma that happened in their lives. I bet it was assault. I bet it was rape. And nine times out of 10, that turns out to be the case, Mm -hmm. that they're defined by sexual trauma in their past.
0: I think at the same time that essentializing a character based on their race or gender or sexuality is something that people are now trying to avoid and interrogate, At the same time, the experience you have as a person of color, as a black person, as a gay person, as a woman, those are, are real. Like your, your subject position in life is real and does in a lot of ways inform your narrative. So I don't know. Anyways, (laughs) speaking of what about in terms of gender identification? I mean, it's offering a very different version of femininity in some ways different. I mean, it's still all about consumerism. Right. But, you know, compared to Barbie, the Bratz don't have jobs. Barbie has jobs. I mean, they're not a requirement for having the dream house or the Corvette. They're sort of just fun things that she does. But I thought that was interesting, this, like, alternative kind of vision of, of womanhood and style that
1: the Brats are offering girl consumers. Totally. And I think, as Guerrero points out, that's something that's very indicative of the time in which they were released. She quotes a 2004 study by Juliet Shore that says, "'Children's top aspiration now is to be rich.'" a more appealing prospect to them than being a great athlete or a celebrity or being really smart. The goals of earlier eras, 44% of kids in fourth through eighth grades now report that they daydream a lot about being rich and nearly two thirds of parents report that my child defines his or her self-worth in terms of the things they own and wear. It's depressing and definitely still, still the case. And I think has only gotten worse with the Kardashians with influencer culture, with people who make money posting photos of themselves holding products and endorsing products. Right,
0: and and that goes back. We always bring it back to Gill and Scharf and their discussion of neoliberalism and post-feminism, but emphasis on projects of the self, on constant self-improvement, re-emphasis on the body and femininity, and like bodily perfection and like entrepreneurship. And I mean, it, honestly, it relates to Real Housewives stuff too. But interestingly, the brats—they have you know, environments or like little play sets that they can be Purchased with, but there are no homes or apartments. It's all, you know, stores, internet cafes, sushi restaurants, clubs. I think I had a club, but I can't remember if it was specifically for brats or my scene dolls,
1: you know, or you can buy them cars and motorcycles. And a private jet, which reminds me in one of the Fire Festival documentaries, I forget if it was the one on Netflix or Hulu, they talk about how people, young people, are paying for time in a private jet backdrop or private jet set to take photos to look like they're on a private jet. Wow. Just fascinating. Jesus.
0: Yeah. She describes this as being part of the ethereality of cool. The brat dolls are always in spaces of pleasure or consumption mm-hmm. and – they're therefore, quote, endlessly hypersolvent, untouched by the complications of labor. Yeah, and, and then she goes in to talk about that Juliet Store study on the disembodied notion of achievement. And I think it's interesting. I wonder if Brath's. I mean, obviously, with the recession of, of 2008, 2009, most people, parents were buying fewer toys and cutting back on stuff – because they couldn't afford it. But I wonder if the values that the Bratz dolls kind of espoused have something to do with their decline in popularity by the late 2000s. I mean, I have no idea.
1: Well, what's interesting to me, it really feels like even if their popularity has declined and I don't know what the status of Bratz dolls is, I don't know if they're still popular. It feels like Barbie definitely has lasting power it's maybe not as popular as it used to be, and and clearly has Mattel has responded to, you know, changes in our views on women's bodies and clearly taken more of a responsible role, maybe, in the kinds of dolls they're giving to little girls. But what's so interesting to me is that. The brat really. I know I said this already, but that they do look like they have the Instagram filter on them. Well, they look like
0: Kylie Jenner,
1: right? They're white, Asian American, you know, other mixed races, uh, African American. They all look the same, right? They really do, right? They just have different colored skin and hair and eyes, but you know, their faces are all identical. Again, speaking to this post racial beauty standard that actually was extremely one-dimensional, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. The last thing she talks about is like offering white suburban kids an opportunity for tourism of urban spaces without having to leave suburbia. The dolls were mostly played with by white girls um, who are playing the exotic with their dolls who wear belly chains and I don't know, are supposed to look urban. Mm-hmm. And this piece talks about the Bradstall's success relies on first images of difference but also naturalized notions of whiteness or understanding whiteness as the default. Mm. And the idea is that difference is still beautiful with these dolls, but it has to exist in opposition to what's normal and what's normal is white. What's normal is Barbie. They have to exist in opposition to Barbie. But when she keeps talking about like the issue with playing the exotic or um, playing the urban, I'm just trying to imagine, would she prefer that these dolls have, you know, play sets or backdrops of like housing projects? I mean, I, I don't I don't know.
1: I think she's just pointing out that this company, MGA Entertainment, has made a ton of money commodifying racial difference and making racial difference hip. Right. And suggesting that we live in a post-racial world is, is a byproduct of that. But I think that clearly they, you know, toy manufacturers and, and designers, I mean, they must have so much data. Right. And look, they're looking at the world around them. In the early 2000s, it was cool to be racially not white.
0: Or to be racially ambiguous, or but not even, I think it's interesting Mattel's response. Mattel is in like crisis mode in response to the introduction of Bratz and what it does to Barbie's market share, that they come out with two things. One, I had a bunch of these, and I think I had more of these than I did Bratz dolls, was my scene dolls. And I think their bodies are pretty much the same as Barbie's. I mean, they don't have removable feet. Mm -hmm. They have Chests, everything like that. Their heads are slightly bigger and they definitely look like they have much more makeup uh, than Barbie does. And they have bigger eyes and lips and they're fashionable. You know, they wear sort of the McBling style and they have names like Chelsea and Madison and. I think like Lexi, I don't know if they're all supposed to be avenues or neighborhoods in New York, but they live in New York and they're girls about town and they have my scene boys too. And I had a bunch of these my scene dolls and I thought that they were cool and and fun. Madison is one who I think is definitely supposed to be mixed race. Um, she is black, light skinned black and has bright blue eyes and the other response, Ellie, and I had totally forgotten about these dolls till you brought them up by Mattel, is the flavor dolls. hmm And that's the commercial, what's your flavor? Tell me what's your, your flavor. flavor. <laughs> and yep. they're like hip-hop, you know, the word you're not supposed to say to describe them would be ghetto. Right. You know, the main blonde one, and this is funny, she has like, I think she has braids, right? Yep. And in the commercials, they're like breakdancing and with graffiti and, and stuff like that. And those were criticized by consumers being white, you know, middle class, upper middle class suburban parents who thought that they were a bad influence. I mean, they should be criticized for like cultural appropriation and racial insensitivity and commodifying. I don't know. Are they supposed to be selling some version of urban poverty very strange.
1: Right, I mean, you also have to look at at that time I remember this being an era where hip hop music was really defining the way women should look. I I just remember, you know, Kanye West songs, for instance, like the song Gold Digger, you know, and just like about she got lipo with your money and met her at a beauty salon and and obviously the images of women in all of these music videos. I remember, you know, mom being like, don't watch MTV or, you know, don't you remember that time where music videos totally. were just so licentious and overly sexualized? Totally. You know, you have music videos like Dirty. Which we watched the other night. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I think now I see it differently and, <laughs> you know, I, I guess – I don't see it differently. I-
0: but there's something like honestly very different because someone could say, oh, well, what's the difference between that and something like WAP? I think right. I don't know. And I don't know if something like WAP is ultimately good and empowering for women. But I think it's very different in terms of agency. Right. It's a far cry from, like, music video girls of early 2000s, you know, hip-hop stuff that was on MTV. Right. Really good commentary on this, among other things, and, you know, bubblegum misogyny and and all of that is – well, I don't really even know how to feel about it because maybe it's actually anti-feminist. I have no idea. You guys should watch and let, let us know what you think. But the Pink song called Stupid Girls from, like – 2005.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Um, that that yeah. like
0: parodies all this. Anyways, check it out. But go ahead, Ellie. Sorry.
1: I was going to say that I find WAP to be an incredibly feminist song. <laughs> and I think, you know, I understand they're talking about wet ass pussies, but for the first time, I feel like they're demanding their pleasure and articulating their desire. And, you know, there's hardly any men in the song. And obviously they're in very sexual outfits and positions, but I don't know. I feel like they're inhabiting that space with a lot more agency and self expression than someone like Christina Aguilera, who I honestly, you know, and I need to do more reading about it, but I remember seeing dirty and being like, Oh my God, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. She's wearing a belt as a skirt and she's writhing around and on a dirty wet floor And I would love to hear what she has to say about it, but it felt like she was very thin and she was catering very much to the male gaze. Right.
0: And I mean, same thing with Slave for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure her team was constantly looking at what Brittany was doing and trying to one-up her, trying to be sexier, be dirtier, be edgier. You know, I think that's when she became Mm ex-Tina. And so – I think that the context in which it was made makes still makes me uncomfortable when I look at it and think of it as a cultural artifact. To me, WAP is very different because I think that's Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, you know, just saying, yeah, you better bring it because we have WAP. Right. And if you don't satisfy us, you know, move along. Thank you next. Right. And I love how uncomfortable it made so many people, especially conservative pundits on Fox News were appalled. Right. And I really think it's because it was two women who were making it. And it's about
0: vaginas and vaginas are horrible and scary. Or just female
1: desire is horrible and scary and they right. really, really put it out there. <laughs> right. Totally. Or, you know, the Fast and the Furious franchise, which is just cars and butts, <laughs> and the entire world we were living in, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover, the Victoria's Secret fashion show. I mean, it was just relentless.
0: Yeah. I'm wa- I'm watching the docuseries about Victoria's
1: Secret. Yeah, I watched it too. Fascinating stuff. We've really taken a moment to look at that time with documentaries like that. The other one on Abercrombie and Fitch called White Hot. Or on even
0: on Framing Britney Spears. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it was a really crazy time. And I'm glad we're taking this podcast as an opportunity to reexamine it. Totally. And understand how it created foundations within us that really don't serve us. You know, I was thinking a vast majority of American women, I think, still are unhappy with their bodies, and that is really, you know, when you when you learn what it was caused by, in my opinion, and I think I've read literature that would agree. You know, it's all a symptom of consumerism and getting people, particularly women, to keep buying stuff.
0: Right. Neoliberalism, post-feminism, baby.
1: Right. And if you show an unattainable ideal that the vast majority of the population will never achieve, the Victoria's Secret body, they will keep buying exercise classes. They will keep dieting. They will keep trying any beauty products.
0: Always be optimizing, Gia Tolentino.
1: Right. Totally. I mean, so to me, you know, I feel very lucky to have always felt at peace with my body for the most part. But of course I have my days. Wow. Good for you. (laughs) I I know that sounds crazy, but I just, I think learning about this stuff has made me and just understanding it as a tool of oppression and the patriarchy. I think understanding that makes me want to say, fuck you to all that. And I'm just going to live my life and be happy. And there's so much more to life than being skinny. That's how I feel. And, but I really do think an understanding of where this ideal has come from, and how ideals change o- over time. Right? How it used to be cool to be plump and pale because it, you know it said that you could eat well and you weren't toiling in the fields, right? Um, I think also
0: though it, it's hard to because it's so ingrained in mm-hmm. me. While I'm learning, you know how to be sensitive to others by. Avoiding language that is fat phobic Mm -hmm. or, you know, wanting to celebrate body positivity. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for me to do that with my own body and with my Mm. own self, to not be afraid of gaining weight, to be able to see the word fat as neutral when it comes to myself, to, you know, not be fat phobic in terms of thoughts about or to be body positive about my own body. It's very, uh, there's a really strange
1: and difficult cognitive dissonance. Definitely, and and think about that, you know, think about the dolls we played with every day when our little brains were forming and what that taught us about what we're supposed to look like. Right. You know, I mean, really I, I do see a direct correlation. Thanks for joining us in another episode of All Each Other Has. This one was extremely interesting to me and cathartic. And I just really enjoyed taking the time to reexamine the dolls we played with in the early 2000s, the advent of the Bratz line and what it said about consumerism at the turn of the century and also about trying to create a post-racial world, celebrating multiculturalism. I learned this all in the past week doing some readings that my brilliant sister shared with me. Well, you know what, Ellie,
0: I'm kicking myself right now f- about the fact that we hadn't come across or read the Jill Lepore New Yorker article from 2018 about about brats and Barbies. I know. But I just linked it on the podcast Instagram and we can all read it together as a community. Um, because I'm, a, I, I'm obsessed with Jill Lepore. And, yes, me too. You know, I, I wish I were Jill Lepore. I, she's amazing. She is amazing. I'm such a darling of the Amstead community. (laughs)
1: Um, (laughs) but anyway thank you for joining us we're going to continue our conversation next week where we're going to delve into our favorite line of dolls American Girl This episode you've all been waiting for a lot of you out there have very nostalgic feelings for American Girl so we're excited to go there and we'll talk about nostalgia
0: and identity too and historiography anyways (laughs) we have to go to bed it's late
1: love you you guys Love you like a like a sister. Bye. Bye.